You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Jasmine Hume, who's the founder and CEO of Shiru, a biotechnology company addressing a critical need in the food industry by providing access to more sustainable and healthy ingredients. Jasmine is an expert in proteins, leveraging deep biochemistry, materials science, and food science knowledge to bring transformative, sustainable foods from concept to reality. In addition to her work as CEO and founder of Shiru, she is a 2019 graduate of Y Combinator, former director of food chemistry at Just, and a former summer associate for VC firm Lux Capital. Jasmine holds a doctorate in protein engineering from NYU, a master's in science from Chalmers University, and a bachelor's in engineering from McGill University. Shiro is 25 employees, six products, over $20 million raised. We talk about being a solo founder, what time inside a VC firm can teach you about being a founder, and what it's like to fundraise while you're eight months pregnant. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Jasmine. So great to have you on. Thanks. Really happy to be here. So I'm wondering, can you really make plants taste like animals? <laughs> um, it's complicated, but there is hope. <laughs> yes. It, you know, plants obviously have evolved to do very different things uh, than animals. We find ourselves at a really interesting point, I think, in uh, in human history where we really do innovate in the food space to optimize for more sustainable food solutions. And so looking to plants to, you know, replace less sustainable foods, mainly those that we derive from animals, is actually really, really critical right now. And we're excited to be providing solutions for that at Shiru. So is environmental sustainability your mission? Very much so. Yes, that's exactly why I started the business. There are a number of different motivators for why consumers are shifting more towards plant-based or even reducing the, the amount of animal products that they're consuming. I would say that in general, there are three categories. One is for reasons of uh, improving human health. Second one is for animal ethics. And the third one is for sustainability. And at Shiru, we are really driven to produce ingredients, make better foods so that we don't have to rely on, you know, products that we currently rely on animals for. Animal husbandry and agriculture and the the land, energy and water use that we require to raise animals as food sources is one of the biggest environmental strains that we have on the planet today. So to the extent that at Shiru, we can make ingredients that are more sustainable, but don't require the consumer to sacrifice on really important things like taste texture or cost, that's hugely motivating to us. So definitely the, the sustainability motivator is uh, is definitely why I started the company and, and where we see a big opportunity for Shiro. And how do you figure out how to get those attributes from plants? Great question. So I'll give you a little bit of a, an overview of kind of what we do at Shiro specifically. So we are essentially a next generation ingredients company. We 
recognize this big opportunity to, to replace ingredients like egg protein, or dairy protein, or functional, you know, proteins like collagen come from obviously animal sources traditionally. Uh, in a lot of different food contexts, those ingredients are used because they really perform a critical job. That job might be emulsifying or providing texture or stabilizing food matrix. And in reality, there are a lot of other proteins out there, some coming from plants or even other diverse sources like fungi, microorganisms, algae, that can behave in just the same way or maybe even better, but that obviously, you know, we don't need to raise animals to be able to cultivate. And so at Shiru, that's kind of the, the sweet spot for us. Uh, we are developing an ingredients catalog where we are looking to essentially tap into these maybe more overlooked or not previously known sources of very, very functional proteins from plants, microorganisms, and other sources that we can use to essentially swap out animal proteins in all kinds of different food categories, things ranging from plant-based meats to plant-based dairy, cheeses, yogurts made without you know, cow milk, essentially, or sauces and dressings, baked goods, the list goes on. It's a long one. Should people expect to see your name on the grocery store shelves? Yeah, great question. So right now, Shiru, we are focusing on developing our product portfolio, which is actually ingredients for food manufacturers. Distinct from, you know, some of the, the companies that you do see on the shelves today, like Oatly or Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, we are taking a slightly different approach at Shiru, where we know that there are a lot of other big food manufacturers out there who are desperately trying to innovate and to create, you know, better products for the consumers that are, you know, plant-based or vegan, yet they don't have maybe all of the sophisticated R&D capabilities that some of the, the, you know, current generation startups have really prioritized. And so what we are, how we're positioning ourselves at Shiru, which is pretty unique in terms of, you know, looking at a lot of the quote unquote alternative protein companies in the landscape today is that we really see ourselves as an ingredients provider to these food CPG companies that are not producing or innovating their own ingredients, but still really need cutting edge technical ingredient solutions to be able to compete with the, you know, beyond meats of the world. And so you probably won't see, you know, the Shiru brand name on the ingredient shell or on the on the supermarket shelves in the in the near term in any case. But we do intend to be kind of like the intel inside, if you will, uh, the real differentiating component or ingredient solution in our case to hopefully the the best products that are on the shelves. So are you the arms dealer to the incumbents? But if I can mix metaphors, you're also, the Trojan horse that's getting the incumbents to switch to plant-based? I, I, I like that way of describing it. I think I might borrow that from you, Miles. Um, yes, uh, we, we, we can see ourselves as, as that, to, to find ingredients, to produce ingredients that are functionally equivalent or superior to some of these things that we're trying to move away from. It's not easy, and there is science and technology and product development that's involved in that. And at Shiru, we're really building our team and capabilities so that that's where we excel. Like we can do all of the, 
the, the nitty gritty hard science so that the food manufacturers that we support and partner with can do what they do best, which is product innovation, formulation, sales, marketing, distribution, and create a really synergistic relationship with them in that way. So yeah, I mean, we, we do intend to be kind of the, the, the Trojan horse, if you will, uh, the, the, secret, the secret weapon for a lot of these food companies where otherwise it would be, you know, a huge undertaking really for them to build out kind of a business within a business to create their own ingredients that they then make their foods with. When did you know personally you wanted to get into this space? Yeah, <laughs> you know, things things happen slowly and then they happen suddenly sometimes. I, I can't pinpoint it to a, a particular day or time, I would say, but, you know, my, my background is as a scientist. I have my, my training in protein engineering and material science, and I think I've always been driven personally by solving hard problems. <laughs> um, I'm kind of like on a constant path for for learning and and bettering myself and hopefully doing so in a way that is useful to society. So, you know, that's led me on this path of like really science and engineering and that's been extraordinarily rewarding for me. It wasn't until I finished my academic career when I graduated uh, with my doctorate that I became aware of this burgeoning space in food technology and alternative proteins. Coming from a more traditional like protein science background, the applications that I was exposed to were really only in biomedicine or therapeutics, for which proteins are known to, to hold a lot of value there. And, you know, I learned about a lot of these companies that were kind of popping up over here in the Bay Area that were leveraging all kinds of different technical capabilities, including protein science, to solve what I think is the biggest problem maybe of our, our time and, you know, of the next generation likely as well, which is figuring out how to use the, the precious resources that we have on the planet in a way that enables us to continue to thrive and grow as a population in the decades to come, which is very urgent. And I think we need many different solutions to be able to address. So I guess when, it was once I kind of realized that there were opportunities for me to apply my technical training towards this, this really interesting problem of figuring out how to make a more sustainable food system. And once those two things came together for me, it was like there was no stopping. I'm, I've just been super passionate, super excited about the growth and development of this space have had an opportunity to work for really some of the, the most cutting edge companies in this space, whether they were the ones developing, you know, early placements for, for egg that were made from beans or, you know, looking at ways to use crops to express proteins that mimic animal proteins, a bunch of different applications, which, you know, led me to really have a keen understanding of the opportunities and the challenges in the space. And of course, how we can leverage and borrow from, you know, technological advances from adjacent industries and apply them towards food, which ultimately has resulted in the, the, the idea behind Shiru. And you previously worked at more of a consumer facing food company. Did that influence your decision to sell to existing incumbents? Yes, it did, actually. It did. Yeah. So I, I did work at a company that was definitely making consumer-facing plant-based food products. And a couple of the, you know, there were very interesting learnings that I had there. One of the really interesting things that folks may not really be aware of if you're not like deeply embedded in the food tech space is that there are very, very few food CPG companies that actually also develop 
their own ingredients. I think that there are like two that come to mind for me, you know, Impossible Foods that has this uh, soy-like hemoglobin protein that they produce themselves and Oatly to, 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 on a different, you know, approach as well, develops their kind of oat, oat blend from which they formulate with. Other than that, there aren't very many examples and there are probably a lot of reasons for this, especially as you consider startups, you know, thinking about developing really foundational, scalable, robust, R&D or technology platforms is a huge undertaking. There are lots of resources devoted to that, both in terms of CapEx and infrastructure and facilities, but also in terms of the types of talent and teams that you need to be able to, to assemble to accomplish those things. And then similarly, you know, equally big challenges to have consumer-facing brands that stand a chance against these more established companies when it comes to ultimately what is the battle for shelf space in the supermarket. Think about marketing, storytelling, branding, packaging. Those are some of the things that really move the dial there. The capabilities that you need to build to have you know, this robust R&D approach and be really successful in, in that battle for shelf space aren't always overlapping right? It's different capabilities, different teams, different resources. And so especially for an early stage company, I think, you know, it's reasonable that there's a certain tension between where you put your focus, where you put your resources. And with limited time, limited resources in the early days, that, that tension can be pretty challenging, I would say. So, you know, I think as, as I was ideating on like what type of company I wanted to, to launch in this space, there are a lot of consumer facing brands where I think that ultimately, you know, your, the, the branding, storytelling, packaging is going to really set you apart. And then there are, there is a huge opportunity in obviously like the core technology ingredient development that I think makes really a phase shift in the whole industry. Kind of looked at as like maybe a less sexy type of company in many ways, uh, because we are not the, the brand that you would see on the shelf. But this was something that I saw a big opportunity to be able to make a, a much larger impact. And so we've definitely, you know, identified ourselves as being really the, as I mentioned, like the Intel inside the, the technology provider that will enable, you know, real product definition and differentiation for, for the companies that we partner with. R&D is different than consumer marketing. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Different teams, different capabilities, different timelines, different ways of communicating, probably. So we are leaning into, you know, where our, our strong suits are, which right now we're, we're a very heavy R&D or R&D heavy organization, building out other capabilities as well. But that's been kind of our, our starting place. Yeah. You mentioned thinking about what kind of company you wanted to start. Does that mean you decided you wanted to be an entrepreneur before picking the idea? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think I did, actually. And a uh, little known fact maybe is that Shiro is technically my second startup. I actually started a company with some, some lab mates from my PhD days when I was at NYU, where I got a little bit of a taste for what entrepreneurship was. We were doing something totally different. We were making iPad and iPhone apps for laboratory management, which is still a really big opportunity, I think. But this was, you know, 10 years ago now. But really saw uh, firsthand, you know, how you can leverage a technical background to do something that has a much broader impact than maybe, you know, the, the scope of the, the research that you're doing 
an academic lab setting. And also understanding that, you know, the communication, the positioning, the identifying of the business opportunity were things that I personally really liked doing. And so I'm, I'm grateful for, for that opportunity because it kind of, I think, opened the door for me to see what it might be like to, to actually pursue entrepreneurship in a really serious way. So it wasn't totally, totally foreign to me. And then, of course, I think, you know, working for, for years in this alternative protein space and really getting a sense for where the major trends are, what consumers are looking for, and also what gaps still existed in terms of solutions being provided. It was, it became increasingly clear to me that this is something that I wanted to do personally. And so, you know, it's, again, it's like these things happen kind of slowly and then quickly. I ultimately like the, the nudge that like really pushed me over the, the edge to starting Shiru was actually submitting an application to Y Combinator and getting accepted. So, you know, once all of that happened, it was it was full steam ahead, really. Yeah. So tell us more about that. I've heard this in a surprising number of cases where an external deadline to apply for some sort of program spurs someone to make the decision they're starting a company now. How, how yeah. did that process work out for you? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it was a really interesting time. In fact, I I spent the better part of a year actually thinking about the type of business that I wanted to build and actually kind of doing like literally an international roadshow meeting with potential co-founders. I was living in the Netherlands at the time, knew I wanted to start this type of business. So like, you know, R&D enabled ingredients company and literally traveled to Berlin, London, Stockholm, to meet with potential co-founders and for for you know whatever reasons didn't find like exactly the the right match but over that time like continued to hone in on what the business idea was and like how I would execute on it and recognize that kind of the first thing to do for me and especially since I have a background in in you know science and protein engineering I was like I need to get in the lab I need to go and make some initial products to be able to prove this out to myself and to uh, anyone who is, you know, going to jump in on, on this journey with me. Having access to a biotechnology lab is was critical. And it's also not the same thing as, you know, maybe being able to, to jump into your garage and like code an app on your laptop. Um, I needed startup capital to be able to have access to a lab because, you know, I wasn't in academia. This this, you know, Shiru didn't spin out of an academic lab. So I needed to get into a lab and that costs money. And so I started, you know, talking with, uh, with mentors and, and one of my mentors basically said, have you thought about applying to Y Combinator? I, you know, coming from the biotech space, knew very little about Y Combinator. And this is kind of interesting. I'm sure if I was running a software company, I would have, <laughs> I would have been knowing like Y Combinator would have been on my radar for many, many years. And literally, this was a Friday night, and I looked, I, I googled Y Combinator, saw that the applications were due for the next cohort on Monday morning. And so I thought, okay, great. I have a weekend ahead of me. Uh, let me hunker down and fill out this application form. And that's literally what I did. It was the first time that I put the idea that I'd been working on really concisely on paper, quote unquote, like to, to put that application together. 
the the side story that was also really interesting that particular weekend, which was that uh, my husband and I found out that we were pregnant with our first child literally that weekend. And so <laughs> the timing, you know, wow. like, yeah. <laughs> wow. So you, you gave birth to a startup and then started the next uh, pregnancy immediately. That's a lot <laughs> yeah. going on in one weekend. Yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, sometimes life just like throws things at you and you're just like, okay, let's, let's figure this out. And so, you know, we, we had that news, we were excited. And then I said, okay, let's just see where this application process goes. And then, you know, both of these wonderful things in my life, like moved forward really kind of at the same time. So, you know, I, I, we got accepted, I got accepted to Y Combinator, um, which also, you know, in retrospect was a pretty unique or, or extraordinary event because I found out later that they have very low acceptance rates for sole founders, which I was. And so, you know, got there, came to, to Silicon Valley for this four month period that coincided with, you know, month, whatever it was, like four to eight of my pregnancy, essentially. And I can assure you, there weren't many other founders in that cohort that, that looked like me um, or, or any others maybe that were on the demo day stage being seven months pregnant. So it was, a, it was a pretty cool experience. The stereotype I have of YC is definitely not uh, pregnant founders pitching at Demo Day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dina, who introduced us from Lux, partner at Lux, wrote an article for Forbes about fundraising while pregnant and the superpower of being a mother. You were featured in that article. I'm curious, any learnings from that? Any advice for others in terms of fundraising? Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for the question, actually, Miles, because it's not something that I, <laughs> I talk about a lot, um, but I think it's really important to share for a, the future generation of, you know, hopeful entrepreneurs and, and mothers and parents in general. So, you know, I closed Shiru's seed round uh, when I was eight months pregnant. We raised $3.5 million. It was led by Lux Capital. In fact, Dina uh, was the partner who, who led the deal. And I have to say, going through Y Combinator, preparing for what I knew would be you know, an intense fundraising period, I worked up in my head a lot. Like, oh my gosh, what, are, what do I say if investors kind of question, am I going to be able to do this? Does the timing make sense? What are her priorities? Especially hearing a lot of unfortunate stories from other female founders who maybe were not even pregnant, but get questions from investors like, hey, what are your plans for raising a family? When are you planning on doing that? And I just thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't imagine that men get these questions. But, you know, built it up in my head a lot and got, you know, had, had some answers prepared in my back pocket, so to say. The interesting thing was that I actually got no questions about it from investors. And in retrospect, I actually think it was a pretty nice thing that I was, you know, meeting investors. This was before COVID, of course, so I was like meeting people in person. And I was, you know, six, seven, eight months pregnant. It was essentially a filter, which we had investors that passed. We had investors that jumped in with both both feet. And I'll never know if the investors that passed passed for, you know, reasons that were related to, you know, what was going on with me as a founder at that very moment in time or for other reasons. I'll never know. And it really doesn't matter. But what I do know is that the investors who participated in our seed round and had a lot of conviction around what we were building at Shiru knew exactly what I was what was on my plate as a founder and where my priorities were and that I had a tremendous amount of passion 
towards what I was doing and I was taking it very seriously. I think if, you know, you meet an eight month, eight month pregnant woman and she's like, I'm going to start a company. You're probably like, you're probably like, okay, she, she, you know, there's some seriousness behind what she's proposing here. So I, I think actually, you know, it was, it was for, it was for me a really nice filter. I know that the investors that joined at the seed round were really behind the vision and behind me as a founder. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I'm yeah, curious. You're welcome. Yeah. What did you learn as a VC associate that other founders should know? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, I worked as a summer associate at Lux Capital in, uh, in their New York City office. This was during my PhD studies. So I think I already recognized I didn't necessarily want to stay in the lab uh, forever. And so had an opportunity to do some technical due diligence and support, you know, building out some of the investment theses that Lux was working on at the time. It was really incredible to have the opportunity to, you know, sit in in the boardroom when founders would come in and do their pitches for their startups. And the most interesting thing was taking, you know, mental notes on what are the questions that the VCs ask of the entrepreneurs? And also really importantly, when the entrepreneurs leave the room, what do the VCs talk about? What are, what are the questions? What are the areas where they really, really, really emphasize and put their focus and have as critical insights when they're making decisions on whether they want to invest in the company or not. I think for me, you know, some of the, some of the things that might be obvious are, you know, recognizing the size of the market, where the technology readiness is, to what level they've de-risked their business model. Uh, Do they have customers? Those are maybe some of the, the more obvious things. Some of the maybe less obvious ones are really the emphasis and importance that VCs, I would say like good VCs, place on the team and the interactions that they observe between the founders and between the team and communication styles between entrepreneurs and, you know, the, the, the hopeful investors who are going to join them in that journey. As much as, you know, noticing like really you know, particular things of like, oh, do you see how, you know, they responded to that email? Like that was a bit bizarre or like, are they hiding something? And like really paying attention to these human interactions that really are the foundation for trust and strong working relationships. And I thought that that was, I, I felt very privileged to be able to kind of see those those discussions and, and hear those tidbits behind behind the closed doors and definitely have have been insights that have been really important for me in how I interact with VCs and investors. And yeah, they're very, very interesting kind of insights from from having that opportunity. Well, thank you for that. Yes, as an investor, when I've had my investor hat on meeting with co-founders, I particularly like to watch the dynamic between them. Who answers what kind of questions? Do they interrupt each other? Do they have the courage to disagree politely, but not with an edge. Like, or, yeah, you could just see so much watching team members, even if they're not co-founders. And that's why I love to get multiple people in the room, not just one founder CEO pitching. Definitely. Now, as a solo founder, how have you gone about building the team or making decisions? How do you think it's been different? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I. I'll never know <laughs> what, what the other side of the coin could have looked like, but I think that there are very real challenges either way. <laughs> you know, the early days in particular were pretty challenging as a sole founder because you really have to trust yourself and also find a lot of 
for in my case, like I, I relied on support, guidance, advice from mentors, advisors, and, you know, the trusted investors too. I recognize like, you know, as, as a sole founder, you're not going to have all the answers. You're going to have to make a lot of decisions or all the decisions in the early days. But for me, it was really important to rely on folks who had complementary skill sets or perspectives from mine or who had already done, you know, things like this and launched businesses or helped launch, launch businesses to get advice and guidance from them. Being, you know, roughly two and a half years into the journey now, almost three years into the journey, it's no longer something that I feel or that comes up, honestly, like ever anymore. And the reason for that has been building a super capable and robust team. And so, you know, now like at Shiru, we have, we have folks uh, coming from lots of different backgrounds, but, you know, very experienced leaders that are coming from the uh, medical bioinformatics space or food technology, ingredients, sales, all kinds of areas where, you know, it's, it feels like a true leadership team and the fact that in, in the beginning it was it was me kind of like wrangling these decisions on my own it's definitely in the rear view now but I, I would say in the early days you know it is possible to do it it's as, as a sole founder it's not it's not always easy but I can imagine that having co-founder or multiple co-founders can have its challenges as well so it's just you know a different a different flavor of challenges I would say yeah pick your poison you said that it was important to have mentors and advisors, particularly early on. How did you find, select, and engage those people? Yeah, really an interesting question. You know, I, I'm a big relationships person. I, <laughs> I think one of the most rewarding things um, about, you know, my job and, and life in general that I love is like actually building, cultivating, and growing relationships with people. And so a lot of my, my early mentors were folks who I had worked with previously, honestly. So it might have been, you know, someone or professor from academia, or it might have been, you know, someone who I reported to previously. And uh, interestingly, you know, being in the Bay Area and having worked uh, in this space for a couple of years, a lot of the people who I actually started out kind of uh, working with here a couple of years ago went on to start their own companies. So maybe were, you know, one, two or more years ahead of me in this journey of starting a company. So those people were huge resources and, uh, and friends to me in the time of like getting things kind of from the, the floor to the first step, if you will. So I, I think that, you know, previous work, work relationships. And then also I've just been, you know, really well supported and fortunate in that you know, a lot of the people who I'll meet and maybe it's a recruiter or it's someone who's, you know, our lawyer helping us, you know, craft like all the documentation we have. These people tend to, if they like what you're doing and they trust you, they open up their Rolodexes in like really, really tremendous ways. So I've been very fortunate to have, you know, folks who have been helping build Shiru, maybe as contractors or external people, be like, hey, you should really talk to this other person who I worked with who knows a lot about IP strategy or what have you. And then, you know, those are opportunities that I very frequently say yes, thank you to. And in many cases, those are those can develop to be really valuable relationships where I've just been, you know, really excited by 
I think the the magnetism that you can sense as an entrepreneur in starting something that hopefully is going to snowball into something with a, a lot of potential. There are so many good people out there, professionals who have so much experience who really just want to help. They just want to help you, you know, build the business, try and share their insights with you so that you don't make, you know, mistakes that they've lived or experienced or seen themselves. And I think for for me that that's that's been really, really helpful to uh, listen to those folks and build those relationships because, yeah, you're you're (laughs) you're you're not going to be able to like know everything yourself, but the more experienced people that are supportive that you can put around you and learn from uh, has been has been really important for me. What's been the most challenging in this process? That is a very <laughs> tough question. I think that, you know, I, if I could probably answer that at like distinct time points and like my answer would change, honestly, I'm going to answer it now <laughs> in terms of like today. I would say that there are there are a couple of things. So one, as I mentioned, like I'm a big relationships person. And I think because of that, I put a lot of emphasis in terms of what type of company culture we want to build at Shiru. And I look at that as one of the biggest opportunities of my career, honestly, to build a lasting culture for the company. And it's something I really enjoy doing too. So, you know, we are 25 people today. We have what I think is a really phenomenal culture and it's underpinned by certain values like courage curiosity, humility that are driving us forward. And I think, you know, hopefully anyone who meets with our team can get a sense of of those values being like real things that we act on every day. In the back of my head, I wonder, gosh, how do we preserve that culture or, you know, at least preserve and, and observe those values as we scale the company from 25 to 100 to maybe 500 one day. And knowing that, of course, it's going to change and it's going to look different, but making sure that there are certain, there are certain, you know, values that really anchor us that do scale with the company. And so that's, that's a big opportunity. It's also something that, you know, I'm, I'm actively getting advice and mentorship and ideas on how to do that as we scale. I think the other, the other thing I would describe as a challenge is as an entrepreneur, you know, you are obviously like, I'm painting a picture for what we can do, what we will be. And the opportunity is really big. Like the challenge is really big. We have a big mission to help build a more sustainable food future. And there, this is a global business. The market is huge. So obviously there are, you know, a million different ways that you can kind of build your projections and your growth plan and how that impacts strategy in a very ambitious way, which you also have to balance with risk assessment and reality of where you are today and like knowing that you know the path of where you are today to becoming that big global ambitious company that's like having such a great impact there are definite risks there and it's not going to be a straight line but how do you both paint the picture for what can be and like that's really you know the ambition and really inspiring and we'll get future hires uh, future investors our customers excited and have kind of both feet on the ground in terms of like, you know, this is where we are today. We're just getting started and kind of balancing that uh, on a day to day is something that I find challenging and also really exciting. And the challenge there is that people don't get too abstract or future oriented and still are focused on accomplishing what needs to be accomplished in the short term. Very much so. I mean, I think that that's true internally, for sure, in terms of like, 
you know, you have big ambitions and then you're working with your team and you need to set goals that are realistic so that people feel motivated by them, not overwhelmed by them because there's no way I can complete that in, you know, six months with the resources that I have kind of thing, right? So making sure that like the, the near-term goals like are realistic, they're mapped out, they're strategized and resourced appropriately so that if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, then yes, there's like a realistic path to that bigger vision, right? So headed in the right direction, but it's only one step at a time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. What can you share about the numbers in the business, the number of products, employees, fundraising? Yeah, absolutely. So we are 25 people today. We are, in terms of our products, as I, as I mentioned earlier, our products are our ingredients. We have an ingredients catalog that we released for the first time in 2021, and it's been growing quite rapidly. And so we have six ingredients in there that we're now you know, working on the commercialization strategies for. That would either be kind of one of two different paths forward for each of those. It could be that we scale them and develop them ourselves and end up, you know, selling them as ready-to-use ingredients to food CPG companies. The other path is that we actually outlicense them to maybe other ingredients companies who have the scaling capability already, and they become our production partners for those ingredients. And so we are, we're growing that catalog and expecting to, you know, likely double the size of that catalog in the first half of this year, uh, meaning that we, we have more different food applications that we can address with, within the catalog, basically. And then in terms of fundraising, uh, we have, so we closed our Series A last year in 2021. Uh, we've raised just over $20 million in total. And so, you know, it's been uh, it's been a really great progression for us. Likely, we are going to head into a fundraise, you know, at some point this year as well to be able to continue to scale and deliver our first ingredients to the market and, you know, continue to build out our ingredients catalog further. Oh, that's a lot of progress. That's wonderful. Congrats. Thank you. Any other advice for aspiring founders that you would have? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, I think that one of the things, and I talked about this balance between ambitious, visionary, a big, big picture, and, you know, also recognizing like what tools are in your toolbox today and what you can do. I'm, I'm like a pretty, pretty realistic person, I would say. Um, and so I, I would encourage, you know, founders who are, who are like me, who have a big vision and also are, are like pretty realistic to uh, try and suspend some of that at times. That's what I, I, I do because I know that, you know, there are paths forward and there are really compelling ways to do this, especially if you surround yourself with the right people and infrastructure and, and, and resources that it's totally doable. It's doable. It's not, you know, I don't think that any founder really benefits from from thinking that, you know, it's it's too hard or it's challenging, although you do need to like really listen to feedback and take insights, especially from early customers, you know, valuable leaders that you hire in the business, like I think listening to those people, but also being able to follow your vision and assemble the right resources around you to be able to make that a reality. Well, that's really encouraging and inspiring words for potential founders. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been wonderful having you and hearing about your journey, being so open about your personal journey through it has been wonderful. So I'm appreciative. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, happy to be able to, to share with you and the community. Thanks.
Yeah. How can people follow up with you online or find out more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you are more than welcome to to follow our Siru Twitter account, which is Siru Inc. S A I R U I N C. You can also find us on uh, on LinkedIn or on our website Shiru.com. We have a, a really cool blog there actually, where we put out pretty frequent articles about what we're doing. So I uh, encourage you to to follow us on our website. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.